please, in our Bibles to John 1, verse 43. John 1, verse 43. In May of last year, George Floyd died with his face pressed against the pavement. His death was caused by a police officer pressing his knee against his neck. This death, and some would say murder, was a tipping point for many and caused a wave of protests throughout our nation. Many were peaceful protests, But regrettably, some of those protests turned violent and ended in burning and looting. This violence distracted from the very important message the peaceful protesters meant to send, which is, of course, that black lives matter. Anyone who denies that racism exists in our country is blind to a horrible reality. I feel it is necessary to point out that the church, that is the Bible-believing church, has much to say on this matter because we know that racism is a result of sin. And historically, it is the church that has stressed the dignity and the equality of all people according to the foundational biblical truth, which says that all people are created in the image of God. As our nation seeks to address the sins of its past, it is crucial that we not fall into a new sin. I say that because I have observed that there are a growing number of influential voices in the media, in academia, and in government who claim that racism continues in our country because of white supremacy. What is most disturbing about this claim is that I have heard numerous people, both black and white, giving their expert opinion and say that if you are white, you are a white supremacist and you don't even know it. This kind of broad brush explanation is disturbing and deeply ironic. It seems lost on these so-called experts that by making these kind of sweeping accusations, they are guilty of the racist stereotypes they claim to oppose. That is why as we begin to transition toward our text for today, I'd like to tell you what I was taught on this matter. As I was growing up, I don't recall that in school or at home or in church, the focus was on racism. Instead, the focus was on the dangers of prejudice. I was taught that if you prejudge another person, you are guilty of prejudice. And I was told that if I did prejudge another person, the problem was not with that person, 
or with those people. The problem was with me. I submit that if eliminating racism is our goal, a more effective approach is warning against the sin of prejudice, that is, prejudging another. But someone might object and say, well, you know, we shouldn't judge anyone. If that is your objection, you stand opposed to the Reverend King, who said he dreamed of the day when his children would live in a nation where they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And so I submit the issue is not one of judging another. The problem is the sinful behavior of pre-judging another. And that sin leads to a host of problems, including racism. In our text today, we will see that Jesus knows firsthand about prejudice. There is no one who has ever lived who has faced more prejudice than our Lord Jesus. This was true when he walked among us, and it remains true today. Far too many people avoid him and tragically reject him because they carry preconceived notions about him rather than to take time to meet him and get to know him. Let's have a look ahead at part of our text for today and go please to John chapter 1, verse 45. John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, It is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here is one of many examples of the prejudice that was lodged against Jesus. In this instance, because of where he was raised, it was thought that he could not possibly be a good person, let alone the long-awaited Messiah. But here is an ironic twist. This is the same Jesus who has been subjected to more hatred than anyone who has ever lived, and he is the only one who can remove the sin of prejudice from our hearts. Let me repeat that. No one has received more prejudice than Jesus, and yet he's the only one who can remove that prejudice from our hearts. And why is that? Because he alone has the miraculous power to change hearts, to take our heart of stone and replace it with a soft heart, a heart of flesh. Let's go, please, to the beginning of the passage that is before us today. And we go now to John chapter 1, verse 43, as we pick up once again our verse-by-verse exposition of John's gospel. John 1, 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. This scene begins with a clear time stamp. It is the next day. In the previous scene, which described what happened yesterday, 
we saw Jesus begin his earthly ministry. In the scene from yesterday, we saw Jesus begin to assemble those who would become his disciples, namely Andrew and his brother Simon Peter. And if we were correct in our inference about the intentionally anonymous follower, then John, the writer of this gospel, is also now following Jesus. On this, the next day, Jesus intends to leave the area of the Jordan River where John the Baptist has been preaching and baptizing. The Jordanian wilderness where John has been baptizing is in the southern region of Israel, in the region called Judea. From this southern location, Jesus will now go north to the region called Galilee. The Jews who lived in the south scornfully called this northern area Galilee of the Gentiles. That is because while this area was predominantly inhabited by Jews, a large number of Gentiles also lived in Galilee. Consequently, the southern Jews looked down on the northern Jews because they believed the northern Jews were contaminated by Gentile influence. In fact, there may be some truth to their claim, and we will see some evidence of that in this passage. But the bigger problem is that this kind of biased finger-pointing conducted by the southern Jews against the northern Jews contributed to a common human problem. I mean, a universal human problem. Because they found someone else they could look down on, they avoided looking at themselves. And therefore, their unrepentant sin was left to fester. After we are told that Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, we are then told that he found Philip and said to him, follow me. We are not told where Jesus found Philip. I think it is most likely he found Philip in the area near the Jordan River where John was preaching and baptizing. But it might have been on the way north. It might have been in Galilee itself. But wherever John found, uh, found Philip, the next verse indicates that there is a connection between Philip and the two brothers who are already following Jesus. Let's look at 49, verse 49. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. I don't know why the King James translators chose the word city when describing Bethsaida. Town would have been a better choice, and I think village would have been an even better choice. Bethsaida was a very small town on the northern end of the oval-shaped lake called the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northern end of the lake. Despite it being a freshwater lake, it is nevertheless called the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is a Hebrew name that means House of Fishermen. And it is appropriately named because Bethsaida was a fishing village, the House of Fishermen, and a fishing village. 
Philip, we are told, was from Bethsaida. That means he was raised there. Doesn't necessarily mean he lives there now, only that he was raised there. The brothers, Andrew and Peter, who we know are both fishermen, were also from Bethsaida, as stated here, meaning they too were raised there in Bethsaida. But we know from Mark's gospel that as adults, Andrew and Peter moved six miles away to the larger city of Capernaum, which was also a fishing community on the northern end of the lake. And we know from Matthew's gospel that Peter owned a house in Capernaum, and it would serve as a launching place and a resting place for Jesus and his disciples when they were traveling. They would come back to Capernaum and rest at Peter's house. Because Andrew, Peter, and Philip were all from the same small village, and they were all of the same approximate age, it is almost a certainty that they knew one another. And so it is possible, though not certain, that Philip was also instructed by John the Baptist along with Andrew and Peter, and that Philip heard from John the Baptist when John declared about Jesus, at verse 34, I have seen and I have testified that he is the Son of God. And if that is the case, it would help to explain why Philip immediately responded the moment that Jesus said to him, follow me. Let's spend some time thinking about Philip. His name is a Greek name. And it means lover of horses. Philip means lover of horses, a Greek name. His Greek name does not mean that he's a Gentile. But it does indicate that Philip's Jewish father allowed himself to be influenced by the Gentile culture. Rather than giving his name a traditional Jewish name, giving his son, rather than giving his son a traditional Jewish name, he gave his son a Greek name. But while Philip's name may say something about his father, it does not allow us to draw any conclusions about Philip himself. The three synoptic gospels all mention Philip in their lists of the 12 apostles but they give no further information about Philip. What we do know about him comes from this gospel, the Gospel of John. Last week, we heard a similar statement made about Andrew. <clears throat> Everything we know about Andrew is from this gospel. And I think we were impressed last week when we heard that whenever we see Andrew being singled out, he's always doing one thing. He's bringing other people to Jesus. Philip's appearances, however, are not as flattering. Three times Philip will be singled out in this gospel, and each time Philip will demonstrate a misunderstanding of Christ's mission. But on this day, as Philip begins to follow Jesus, 
He does exactly what every follower of Christ ought to do, and that is to invite others to come and meet Jesus. In the previous passage, after Andrew met with Jesus, he ran to tell his brother Simon the good news. He said to him, we have found the Messiah. Today, we see a similar response as Philip goes to share the good news. Let's go, please, to verse 45. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In effect, Philip is saying the same thing that Andrew did yesterday. We have found the Messiah. But Philip speaks in terms of fulfillment. By referring to Moses and the prophets, he's implying that the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, foretold the coming of the Messiah. And now, Jesus of Nazareth, says Philip, fulfills what the scripture foretold. Philip may have chosen to share the news in this way, speaking of the law and prophets, because he knows that his friend Nathaniel often spends long hours reflecting on the scripture. We will see evidence of Nathaniel's studious and reflective nature shortly. And now Philip declares, we have found him. He doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say, I have found him. He says, we have found him. Philip identifies himself in terms of this growing community of Christ followers. He counts himself among the followers of Jesus, Andrew, John, Peter. And therefore, Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him, the one who fulfills the scriptures. And who is that? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip identifies Jesus by providing two details. That he is from Nazareth and that he is the son of Joseph. Let's quickly review these or consider these in reverse order. When Philip identifies Jesus as the son of Joseph, that does not negate the virgin birth of Jesus. In this time and culture, one of the ways that people were identified was by means of their father's name, right? And so you were somebody, the son of somebody. That is how you were identified. It functioned much like the, the way we use our last name today. In this case, while Joseph is not the biological father, he is the legal guardian of Jesus, and therefore Jesus is identified as Jesus bar Joseph, or Jesus the son of Joseph. The other means of identification is the place where a person was raised. Although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth. Let me repeat that. Although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth. 
Let's go, please, to verse 46. And because Jesus was raised in Nazareth, whenever he was identified, he was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 46, where we hear Nathanael's response to the good news brought by Philip. Verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael is immediately skeptical and dismissive. And what causes his skepticism, skepticism about Jesus? Well, in a word, prejudice. His own bias and prejudice. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He has prejudged that anyone who comes out of that place could not possibly be good. And since nothing good can come out of Nazareth, he draws the conclusion that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. As mentioned earlier, the southern Jews looked down on the Jews who lived in the north because they thought they were contaminated. And it appears from Nathaniel's words that some of the Jews who lived in the northern region of Galilee looked down on those who lived in Nazareth or who were raised in Nazareth. We don't know what might have caused this reputation, but it's not all that surprising that the one who was foretold to be despised and rejected by men would come from such a place that had a despicable reputation. But we might ask if there is another reason why Nathaniel doubts Philip's report. If Nathaniel studied the scriptures, as was mentioned earlier and will be demonstrated shortly, he would know that the prophet Micah foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so it may be that Nathaniel dismisses Philip's news when he concludes that this could not possibly be the Messiah if he comes from Nazareth. But if that is the case, it will be apparent to us that Nathaniel is still prejudging Jesus. Why? He doesn't have all the facts. He heard Nazareth, but we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as the scriptures foretold. We will return to Nathaniel in a moment, but first let's hear Philip's response to Nathaniel's biased assumption. If we look at the second half of 46, Philip says to him, Come and see. We are hearing yet again the language of witnessing. Come and see for yourself. Philip decides. Rather than enter into a debate with his friend, he instead offers an invitation. He has one suggestion. You don't think anything good can come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see. Come and meet Jesus for yourself. Listen, here is a powerful antidote for prejudice. Rather than prejudge a person, come and see for yourself. Come and meet that person. While we do see the sin of prejudice from Nathaniel, he is to be commended in the fact he doesn't refuse Philip's invitation. He's willing to go and meet Jesus. Presumably, he's willing to be proven wrong about his assumptions. 
But even as I say that, I need to make an important clarification. There is no amount of information, there is no amount of education that will erase the sin of prejudice. You see, the sin of prejudice is a matter of the heart, not of the mind. There is only one remedy for this sin of prejudice and the prejudice that lives, leads to racism and so many other things. There's only one remedy for that, it is a changed heart. And there is only one who can remove our sin of stone, remove our heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can make all things new. Let's go please to 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. We will need to approach this statement very carefully. And that is because after Nathanael has just spoken dismissively and even prejudiciously against Jesus, this seems like a strange thing for Jesus to say. That is because it sounds as if Jesus is complimenting him. And in fact, there is a compliment here. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is complimenting his fall and prejudicial behavior. Instead, I will suggest that when Jesus looks at Nathaniel and looks into his soul, he sees the raw material that Jesus can divinely mold into the man that God intends Nathaniel to be. If this man will see the truth, so much will change about him, including his prejudicial thinking. But in order to do that, Nathaniel will first have to change his way of thinking about Jesus. Let's go back to 48 and examine Jesus' words. As Nathaniel comes toward him, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. This statement is composed of two parts. In the first part, there's a declaration. Jesus declares that Nathanael is an Israelite indeed. Or as some other translations helpfully render it, here is a true Israelite. In the second part, there is given some additional information to explain in what way he's a true, genuine Israelite. Jesus goes on to say that Nathaniel can be considered a true Israelite because in him there is no deceit. That is an amazing statement. In him there is no deceit. There is nothing false, nothing dishonest about him. And that is an assessment, because it is an assessment made by the Lord himself, we know that it is completely accurate. Jesus looks into Nathanael's heart. He looks into his soul and says, in him there is no deceit. That means that for all of Nathanael's flaws, and we can be sure there were many flaws, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet he has at least one thing going for him, so to speak. He's genuine. He's honest. To put that in perspective, let's consider that statement 
that in him there is no deceit in light of the larger biblical context. Throughout all four Gospels, we are told how Jesus is repeatedly confronted by the religious leaders of Israel. And why were they confronting him? Because they had prejudicious notions about him. They prejudged him rather than to truly examine him from the heart. And how were these religious leaders described by Jesus? Well, over and over again, he calls them what? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Literally, stage actors, right? Who look good on the outside, but inside were full of death. According to Christ's assessment, and Christ knows the hearts of men, he, says, he sees that in Nathaniel, there's no deceit in him. He doesn't put on a facade. He doesn't pretend to be something he's not. Now, Jesus is not dismissing or excusing the prejudicial assumptions that Nathaniel has made against Jesus himself. Instead, I submit that Jesus sees in Nathaniel an honesty, a sincerity that he can divinely work with. And because of this honesty, because of this sincerity, Nathaniel has the potential to change. And because he's honest and sincere, Jesus will help Nathaniel look at himself. That's the hardest kind of honesty, to look honestly at ourselves. But before Nathaniel can look at his own sin, he's first got to recognize the holiness of Jesus. If we will go now to 48, we will hear Nathaniel's response. After Jesus said, here is an Israelite with no deceit, Nathaniel, 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. When Jesus greeted this man and assessed that there is no deceit, there is no facade, there is no faultless, no falseness to him, it now becomes clear that Jesus was absolutely correct in that assessment. And we know that Jesus was absolutely correct from Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel's surprised. I would suggest he's even shaken. He asks, how do you know me? Nathaniel cannot understand how he's able to make this kind of hard assessment. But he can tell that Jesus is able to know him in a way that is beyond a natural human ability. He's not looking at Nathaniel and has some human ability to understand who he is. Nathaniel can see, he knows that this man before him, Jesus of Nazareth, has a supernatural ability to see into men's souls. And if that was Nathaniel's conclusion just from the first statement he received from Jesus, he's going to get a great deal more right now. As Jesus explains how he knows him and knows him supernaturally, Jesus says to Nathaniel, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And I would suggest Nathaniel understands that Jesus saw him supernaturally. Not with his eyes, but supernaturally. In this culture, 
As Jesus mentions a fig tree, that fig tree is likely to carry with it a symbolic meaning and a practical meaning. In terms of its symbolism, the fig tree was a symbol that represented the blessings of home. If you had a fig tree outside the place where you lived and you could enjoy the sweet fruit of that fig tree, that was a sign that you were blessed by God. But more to the point of this scene, the fig tree also had an important practical application. The fig tree was a great source of shade. And because of its shade, it had another important use. For someone like Nathaniel, it would be a place where he would sit in the cool of the day. I'm sorry, in the cool of the shade. And take time to reflect and meditate on God's word. If that is the case, we might picture what was described earlier in this passage. Philip, now a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, went to Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom, the Mo, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It is very likely that when Philip went to see his friend Nathanael and, and said these words, Nathanael was under his fig tree considering the scriptures. And perhaps it was the case that at that very moment, he was longing in his heart for the Messiah to come. And in God's perfect timing, Philip arrives and he brings the good news. We have found him. At first, Nathaniel dismisses the possibility. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But ultimately, rather than rely on his prejudicial assessment that nothing good could come out of Nazareth, he does respond to his friend's invitation, come and see. And when he does, Jesus says to him, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. If we go now to 49, we'll, we, we'll hear Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's a surprising response. Because just a moment ago, he was dismissive of Jesus. But now that he has met Jesus, he delivers an outburst of confession as he now addresses Jesus with a line of worshipful titles. Not only does he recognize him as the Messiah, saying, you are the king of Israel, but he also recognizes his divinity. You are the son of God. What an amazing and sharp contrast to his earlier prejudicial skepticism. Now, after meeting Jesus, his skepticism has been transformed into acceptance and belief. That can only be the result of a transformed heart. I submit that it is only with a transformed heart can we truly see Jesus. And when we meet him, I mean really meet Jesus... That is such a humbling experience that allows us to see ourselves for who we really are. We are sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. 
And only then, when we see ourselves for who we really are, can we see others in the way they are meant to be seen. They, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, they too are sinners who despite their sin are created in the image of God and therefore are worthy of our love, our respect, and they are worthy of our invitation to come and meet Jesus. After Nathaniel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus now responds to Nathaniel's confession. Verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathanael is amazed by Christ's supernatural abilities. And this sparks a faith in Nathanael that causes him to believe. But this is only the beginning of his faith. He will need to know a great deal more about Jesus. And he will need to know a great deal more about himself. And that is why Jesus has a promise. He says, you will see greater things than these. Here's a spiritual truth. When our eyes are open through faith in Christ, that is when we begin to see the Lord at work. That is when we see lives changed, our own lives and the lives of others. When we believe, that is when we see even greater things, if we will come and see, if we will come and meet Jesus. Let's take a moment to consider where Nathaniel fits into Jesus' ministry going forward. And by the way, the name Nathaniel, it means God has given. God has given. As we think about where Nathaniel fits into Jesus' ministry, it needs to be said, this comes with a degree of uncertainty. Here's why. If we were to consult the lists of the 12 disciples that appear in the three synoptic gospels, we would discover that the name Nathaniel does not appear on those lists. Unfortunately, John does not offer us a list of the 12 disciples. Therefore, two explanations have been proposed. The crying room, please. It may be that Nathaniel becomes a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the 12 disciples. Here's the first explanation. It may be that Nathaniel becomes a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the 12 disciples. There were many who were counted among Jesus' disciples, but were not among the twelve. In fact, at one point, Luke's gospel speaks of 70 such disciples. But I subscribe to the explanation that has been proposed by many scholars that Nathaniel was one of the twelve. According to this explanation, When the disciples are listed in the Synoptic Gospels, the man we are now considering is referred to not as Nathaniel, but as Bartholomew. While Bartholomew is a name that is given to children today, that was not a name that was given in the first century. 
At least it wasn't given as a first name. Bartholomew literally means son of Ptolemy. Bartholomew, bar son of Ptolemy. The prefix bar means son. You know Simon bar Jonah? Thus Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy. In the lists of the 12 disciples, when we read Bartholomew, it is possible this is referring to Nathaniel bar Ptolemy, or as most may likely knew him, with the exception of John, who calls him Nathaniel, they, most people knew him as Bartholomew. In terms of a modern example, I have a friend named Jim Sullivan. A lot of people don't call him by his first name, but by an altered name, uh, an altered version of his last name. Many people call Jim Sullivan Sully. Yep. It is possible, though not certain, that Nathaniel was one of the twelve, but most people preferred to call him by a, a nickname that was a form of his father's name, Bartholomew. Jesus has one more thing to say in today's passage. After Jesus said that because of Nathanael's belief, he would see greater things, he now says this, verse 51. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Up to this point, a great deal has been said about Jesus. Now, for the first time, Jesus speaks about himself. He uses his preferred term when speaking of himself, the Son of Man. It is a term that emphasizes his full humanity, while preserving his full divinity. The divinity of this term, son of man, is evident because the term originates from Daniel 7. And there the scripture speaks of the son of man coming in the end at the final judgment. Although this statement is directed toward Nathanael, listen, it's not for Nathanael alone. When Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, the word you is plural. Meaning, I say to all of you. That means he is speaking to all of his followers, both in the first century and today. As Jesus says that all of his followers will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, it is generally agreed that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. And he's using a key piece of imagery from the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, there is recounted for us an event that occurred in the life of Jacob. Randy spoke about this or read from the text earlier today in the beginning of the service. In the book of Genesis, there is recounted this uh, event that is referred to as the story of Jacob's ladder. Okay? While the patriarch Jacob is traveling, he stops at a place that he will later rename Bethel, meaning the house of God. And part of what occurs is told at Genesis 28, 12. Let me excerpt that for you. Then he, Jacob, he dreamed, and behold, a ladder 
was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, on the ladder. While the similarities show that Jesus is clearly drawing on this imagery, let's take note of a crucial difference. In Jesus' statement, notice, there's no mention of a ladder. Instead, he says the angels are ascending and descending on him, the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying is that he is the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. And therefore, he, Jesus, is the link between heaven and earth. He is the only mediator between God and man. And so, for those who wish to live now, not according to the corrupt ways of this world, but according to the ways of godliness, there is only one way to do so. It is through the heart-changing faith in Christ. And for those who wish to live not just for today, but to live forever and reach our heavenly home, there is only one way to do so, and that is through faith in Christ. I have a request, and it returns us to the issue of prejudice. Please do not assume that because I have white skin that I must be a white supremacist. Because if you do make that prejudicial assumption, the problem is with you. And here's why. I have seen and I will testify that there is only one supreme being and that is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I invite all people to come and see, to meet him, so that you too may follow him and know him. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that there can be no peace apart from you, the Prince of Peace. As your ambassadors, the ambassadors of Christ, Help us to be your peacemakers and do as you do, as you warned Samuel about his own prejudice regarding David. Lord, let us live according to your word when you said to Samuel, do not look at the outward appearance, but at the heart. Amen.